52 official rescues, over a dozen ships destroyed, and a fish fry for 100 people. I'm Rick Mixter, and welcome to ShipwreckPodcast.com with a look at the Spring Gale of 1894. But first, I'll begin with a foot race just 12 years earlier. On March 23, 1882, Chicago native John Dammers laid down a challenge that he could outwalk Racine's famous speedwalker, Frank Higgy. And even though gambling on pedestrian races was illegal, he sent a $10 deposit to hold the contest. Printed in the area newspapers, the race brought enough attention that out-of-towners sought a piece of the action, and local businesses were reaping the benefit of the tourist dollars. Captain William Pugh, skipper of the schooner Rainbow and lifetime resident of Racine, made a sizable $175 bet that Higgy would win the 15-mile race on April 12th. His money was secured by Edward Simpson, and the athletes started walking at the Bell City Opera House. Higgy took the lead early, lapping John Dammers, and while the Chicago native did pour it on for the last mile, Ultimately, Higgy was too far ahead, and Dammers conceded even before crossing the finish line. Captain Pugh was eager to collect his winnings, following Edward Simpson to where he was overnighting. The captain intercepted Simpson in the wine room of the Merchant's Hotel, where he demanded payment. Simpson later told investigators that he and Milwaukee gambler Hartley Clifford felt the race was rigged, and he wanted to talk to the pedestrians that next day. Simpson said he offered to return the captain's investment until things could be worked out, but Pugh insisted to get his full winnings, and just before midnight he rushed upstairs to find the man he actually made the bet with. Hartley Hardy Clifford, who had been drinking with Captain Pugh for most of the day, refused to go downstairs to work things out with Simpson. One witness said Captain Pugh told Clifford he'd make him go downstairs, and a fight ensued near the staircase. Clifford reached into his left pocket and pulled out a handgun, firing two shots into the hotel floor and wall. Captain Pugh rushed Clifford, only to be shot twice as he advanced on him. Bleeding from his abdomen, he exclaimed, I'm done for, and friends rushed him home where he wrote his version of the story. At 10.45 a.m., he scribed, Feeling that I have but little while to live, I desire to add that when Clifford fired the first shot, I didn't have hold of him. He was 10 feet away. I only took hold of him at last to keep him from shooting me. Signed, William R. Pugh. The police had already arrested Clifford, and the trial was set for that winter, where ten farmers and two mechanics constituted the Janesville jury. They found him guilty of murder, and the judge sentenced him to life in a Wisconsin prison. But a later pardon from the governor of Wisconsin would cut his sentence to just 12 years. Captain Pugh's partnership in the Rainbow, originally a 125-foot-long, two-masted schooner, was willed to Pugh's nephew, John, a Civil War vet and former boilermaker that once sailed as first mate on the Rainbow. He got his first command on the schooner Gilbert Knapp and sailed it for nearly three years until his uncle was murdered. He now co-owned the Rainbow with two partners from Wisconsin and California, which he would sail as captain for another dozen years. 1894 began with superstition, with the schooner John Mark causing quite a commotion when it began the season on a Friday, breaking a long tradition that Fridays were unlucky to sailors. The C.P. Minch and Frank W. Gifford opted to wait for the midnight bell of Saturday before beginning their year, 
Gifford's caution may have given them a few weeks of good luck, but that was running out by May 16th. Chicago had quite a lull after a brisk start, as unfavorable winds had settled in and sailing ships had a tough time riding against the breeze. A low front moving from southern Montana did move those winds around to the east, resuming valuable lumber transports from Michigan, but also setting up the area for intensifying low pressure that pulled cold northern air from Canada. A rare 83-degree day lured fishermen onto the breakwaters to catch a free meal, but snow was only minutes behind it. The life-saving station in Chicago said the most severe storm in the history of the station began at 7.30 a.m. on May 18th. The temperatures fell and rain mixed with snow soon afterwards. Winds averaged 50 miles per hour with higher gusts later that afternoon. And all of this happened with what equated to a parking lot worth of shipping outside the breakwaters. Rainbow ran up the lake under bare poles, afraid to put up sails in the building winds. Captain John Pugh had loaded the schooner with a quarter million board feet of lumber near the top of the lake at Menominee, Michigan. Heading down the lake for Racine's Kelly Weeks and Company, the Rainbow had to just ride past their home port and hope the storm would eventually blow itself out. He ordered the anchor drop just outside Chicago's breakwater, just north of the foot of Harrison Street. Rainbow wasn't alone outside the breakwall. Snow flurries kicked up as schooners desperately called for tugs to pull them to safety. One captain that refused a tow was the Jack Johnson, which was anchored just north of the river. Just an hour before lunchtime, the ship broke loose and drifted helplessly towards the Rainbow. The official life-saving report states Rainbow was then hit by the schooner Myrtle, which had arrived a mile north of the gap at the northeast breakwall around noon. 15-foot waves were building outside the breakwall when the Myrtle tried to make shelter. She fouled her main boom topping lift with the Evening Star's jaboom, which was carried away along with the four topmast. A few minutes later, Myrtle crossed the bow of the schooner Frank Gifford, tearing off the superstitious schooner's jaboom. Myrtle lost nearly all of her mast, except a fragment of her aftermast. The schooner clung to the Gifford like she knew what doom awaited her. The winds pushed them apart. Captain John Wilson desperately dropped anchors about three-quarters of a mile from the North Breakwater. The raging winds paid no attention to the anchors, and the Myrtle dragged between 20th and 40th Streets. At 1 p.m., the strongest tug in Chicago volunteered to go out into the gale to help the crew of the Myrtle. Aptly named Protection, captained by William Smith, the 77-foot-long tug steamed out of the breakwall passage, only to find the waters choked with sails, masts, and lines that threatened to tangle his tug in the attempt. He was able to see crewmen on the deck as he returned to Chicago to regroup. Surfman Frank Fountain, the man in charge of the Annex life-saving crew on the South Pier, was exhausted from already bringing in 12 fishermen from the breakwall. He recruited another volunteer crew together along with surfman William Gagnon to man one of their two lifeboats. The protection pulled them out into the open lake, but at 4 p.m., 12-foot waves capsized the lifeboat, plunging the rescuers into 48-degree water. Fountain and the coxswain were in the water for 40 minutes, but the tug managed to get all six aboard, only to turn around and leave the myrtle alone once again. 
The survivors could be seen atop the schooner's cabin as the tug pulled through 65 mile per hour winds to get the freezing lifesavers home. The effort was worse than a failure, said Captain Smith to the Chicago Tribune. They had on cork jackets, so they were in no danger of sinking immediately, but they were heavily loaded down with clothing, including raincoats and boots, and could not float for any great length of time. The lifeboat was completely dismantled. The rudder was broken and the oars and everything loose had floated off. So we righted it and towed it in, and on the way back it upset twice. The effort was a complete failure. Surfman Fountain and Gagnon were given shots of whiskey to warm up, but the alcohol did little to revive them. They attempted to recruit and swear in new volunteers, but Fountain stumbled in what newspapers printed was intoxication, and he cut his head badly from the fall. Fountain had a rebuttal printed that next day. Quote, I was exhausted and senseless when I was brought in, and to restore me I was given stimulants. Under the conditions, I presume I was given too much, but I was ready to go out again in the surf boat after being revived, and could get no one to volunteer to go out with me. Close quote. Five hours after she had arrived at the Windy City, the schooner Myrtle snagged near 25th Street and slipped beneath the waves. Its 58-year-old Swedish-born skipper was among the lost. Many locals also knew the first mate, John Bruner, who was a local who owned a saloon on Milwaukee Avenue. Business had been slow, so he offered to help his friend Captain Wilson, and the trip proved to be his last. At the mouth of the Chicago River, there were many mariners wishing the main life-saving post hadn't been relocated to Jackson Park, about eight miles south of the river. A brand new station and weather bureau building was built and staffed for the World's Fair Exposition where lifesavers put on three shows a week. 24 million people experienced the importance of a life-saving station, but when the worst storm in Chicago's history came ashore, the rescuers were too far south to be of any help. Adding to the frustration was the fact that the station's telephone was removed after the fair, cited as too expensive. A runner was employed to get word to the station in an emergency. Surfman Fountain may have been out of commission at Chicago, but his partner William Gagnon did get in another shipwreck. He and George Mallett warmed up from their own wreck in Lake Michigan, and they arranged for an Illinois Central flat car to pull the remaining lifeboat south to 26th Street, where the Jack Thompson was going aground. At 325 in the afternoon, the alarm was sounded at Indiana Avenue and 22nd Street, and Marshall Townsend and 12 men from Truck 4 ran from the station to the shoreline to help. They tied a rock to a rope in order to throw it against the punishing winds, and after a few tries, they managed to get it on the deck of the Thompson. Fireman Edward Kennedy had to be rescued himself, brought to shore half dead by his fellow firefighters. Captain Thomas Williams was the last to leave his boat, leaping from the stern and joining five other survivors on the beach. The cook, Charles Cauchier, fell into the water and hit floating lumber, which pushed him underwater. Surfman Mallet and Gagnon were too late to help the cook of the Thompson, but their timing was perfect for a small raft that had floated for several miles and was now approaching 26th Street. That raft contained Captain Pugh and the remainder of the crew of the Rainbow. How they ended up separated from their crewmates is part of a thrilling rescue. Captain Charles Roach of the tug Molly Spencer had witnessed the crash of the Myrtle and Rainbow and they sped out to help the crew that seemed to be in the worst shape aboard the Rainbow. 
His rescue attempt would be all that more difficult as the derelict drifted past the break wall, where massive waves were blasting over the rocks. With a hole in her side, Rainbow settled to her decks, and the men were ready to climb into the rigging when the tug came near. Captain Roach convinced several of the crew to jump into Lake Michigan so he could get them, but the captain of the Rainbow refused to jump. Crewman Thomas Johnson cut himself free of the ropes he had tied to keep him fastened to the Rainbow, and he jumped into the freezing water. The tug threw him a line and he was recovered. His brother Anthony soon followed, as did John Anderson and first mate Samuel Martin. The mate missed the rope and a wave pushed him away, but the tug chased him for several hundred yards and eventually brought him aboard. Samuel Martin had been on two shipwrecks prior to this one, as captain on the Lorania when it sank north of Milwaukee in 1893, and skipper of the Persia when it was lost near Racine that next month. Unbelievably, he was on two more shipwrecks after the Rainbow was lost. He was captain on the Silver Lake when it was hit by a car ferry in 1900, and then lost the schooner Michelson in October of 1901. Martin had barely been dragged aboard the Spencer when a big wave dropped on the tug, breaking out the pilot house window. Another two waves pounded the steering gear and threatened to sink the tug, so Captain Roach opted to return to shore, leaving Captain Pugh and two others still on the sinking schooner. At 4.30 in the afternoon, reporters climbed to the top of what was dubbed the largest building in America, the Auditorium off Michigan Avenue. From their 18-story perch, they could see much of the waterfront, and an artist sketched the destruction witnessed just a half mile away. One of the most striking was the evening star, breaking up and floating towards 27th Street. Evening Star had started from Chicago two nights before the storm, heading for Charlevoix, Michigan. Captain Manning Kilton found the storm too much to handle about 50 miles out, and he turned around to return to Chicago to hide behind the breakwater. The winds became so unmanageable that the crew hoisted a distress signal that could be seen from the government pier, but the tugs were busy trying to bring in the big propeller Merrimack into the harbor. Evening Star drifted with the wind, and at 25th Street, she came to an abrupt stop within 25 feet of the stranded schooner Jack Thompson. Snagged on the bottom, the men promptly climbed into the rigging, and local policemen waded into the water to pull all five to safety. Up near 16th Street, there were still three men on the Rainbow, but no tug company dared to venture beyond the break wall now. Rainbow's rigging was lifting in and out of the water as it drifted south along Chicago's waterfront, part of a macabre procession of broken ships that included the Thompson, C.G. Mixer, John Loomis McLaren, Evening Star, and Mercury. The Mercury had three men jump overboard near 26th Street. Tom Thurston managed to make it ashore on his own, but crowds pulled a line taut so four others could shimmy ashore. Ed Sterling fell into the water after the rope broke, but was rescued shortly after. You can learn more about the Mercury and Captain Sterling in my new book, Bottled Goodbyes. I'll have a website you can order it from at the end of the story. Left on the wreck of the rainbow were Captain Pugh, Thomas Williams, and Jacob Knudsen. Three hours they drifted southward from Van Buren down to 16th Street, and the crew were seen rubbing the captain and pounding on his feet to stimulate what the papers called his waning vitality. Shortly before 6 p.m., one of the men in a yellow oilcloth coat ran forward, 
rainbow was breaking up past Lake Park, and the crowd shouted, there they are, they're on a raft. Fifty yards south of the rainbow's broken hull, on a little yellow patch of lumber fastened to a hatch cover, three men were seen bobbing in the waves. Two men were standing upright, one sat clinging to his crewman's knees. On shore, the train chased the raft, which was 200 yards from shore and too far to shoot a line. Worried the raft would be dashed against the seawall, several men waded up to their waists at 16th Street, but the distance was too great. Now the growing crowd blocked the tracks and the train was brought to a stop. Even the roofs of the train cars had people on them. The sighting of the men was welcome relief as the co-owner of the Rainbow had already been telegraphed that Captain Pugh had been lost. The truth was that local residents were jumping into the near-freezing lake to pull storm victims out. Electrical engineer William Havel swam 80 feet to reach the raft, punished by sticks of lumber that bashed against his head. Havel told Captain Pugh to jump in and he caught them, and the duel were pulled ashore. An African-American named E.J. Willis made the second rescue, snatching Thomas Williams from the makeshift float and returning ashore. The tracks were cleared and Havel jumped aboard the train to catch up to the raft once again, jumping in to take Jacob Knutson to safety. All were loaded into a patrol wagon and taken to St. Luke's Hospital. Knutson at first refused whiskey, saying he didn't drink, but sipped it on doctor's orders. Williams later told reporters, quote, I'd never had an experience such as this in 24 years of sailing. We'd almost given up hope when we sighted the hatch cover floating close by, close quote. The tug Molly Spencer had attempted to tow a 130-foot schooner earlier in the storm, but the two tow lines to the CG mixer broke and Captain Henry Abbas didn't have a third. He waved the tug off and dropped anchors, the heaviest being a 1,900-pound hook that snapped off in the gale. They spent the day drifting past Chicago and were now nearly on a collision course with the new pier built for the World's Fair. Loaded with hemlock ties at St. Joseph Island in northern Lake Huron, they had been in the storm for 12 hours, and in desperation the crew hoisted a foresail to try to keep them off the beach. It was shredded in the 60-mile-per-hour winds. Near the fair's art palace, they rigged a flying jib, but had the same result. The ship steered around the long pier, but the sail launched from the mixer like a massive balloon, and the crew responded by hoisting the stars and stripes upside down to indicate they needed rescue. At 4.10, the mixer struck the bottom a third time, this time snagging forever 450 feet off 100th Street. Twenty local policemen arrived at the mixer's stranding, along with Captain Edward Dion of the South Chicago Life-Saving Station. Fire! Captain Dion fired three shots with his brass cannon, and the final shot went into the rigging. Crewman Charles Eitzen climbed the swinging mast to bring it down, and Seaman Helmer Milberg rode the basket car ashore to safety. The captain was the last to leave, getting a good dunking in the waves as the exhausted crews pulled all seven to safety. The cargo and ship were a total loss. The CG Mixer was named for a Henderson, New York boat builder named Charles Grant Mixer, who was this announcer's great-great-great-great-uncle. He died in 1868, and it's likely the wreck was removed when Calumet Harbor was dredged just a few years after the storm, but there is a chance its broken keel is still out there. 
It was nearly 6 p.m. when the schooner John Loomis McLaren drifted into shore near 27th Street, piling up near where Mercury grounded. The remaining crew of six were rescued by officers of the Cottage Grove Avenue station, where 10-year veteran Patrick Garrity nearly drowned, saving three men. He wore a rope as a belt that was used to pull him back ashore with each survivor. Captain Johnson said after the rescue that his first mate, Joseph Spolin, had been killed that morning when a piece of timber hit his head in the storm. Another newspaper report said it was a broken tow post that hit him from when they were initially being towed. 72-year-old crewman Charles Brown initially said he wouldn't leave the McLaren without his luggage. He compromised by tossing his bag to a police officer before jumping overboard. He instantly lit a pipe and told reporters he had been on many shipwrecks but never got his wet. Surfman Enright went out to the wreck afterwards to secure the body of Spolin, which was recovered when conditions were better that next day. He and Surfman Peterson were so overcome by the cold temperatures and exertion that they had to be carried to a nearby home. Lifesavers near Milwaukee had to deal with unimproved roads that took three hours to cross with their wagons and then steep bluffs as they responded to a boat in trouble near Glencoe. The Lincoln Doll had left Manistee, Michigan with 27,500 feet of lumber and they had barely made it out onto Lake Michigan when the storm hit. They lost steering in their rear mast overnight and the crew never slept a wink in the gale. One wave sent crewman Anton Gunderson into a skylight and he vanished forever. Two other men managed to get back aboard the schooner and they were pushed to the Wisconsin side of the lake by the winds. Four survivors, including Captain Samuel Johnson, were brought to the shore by the Evanston life-saving crew. The schooner M.J. Cummings loaded coal at Buffalo, rounding Michigan into Lake Michigan for Racine, Wisconsin. They spent nine hours in rough water and hit the brunt of the storm off the Manitous. Investigators later said Captain John McCulloch should have brought his schooner inside the break wall, but he wanted to stay outside for a quicker turnaround to Racine when the weather broke. Sixty fathoms of chain were paid out and the Cummings spun around into the fury of the storm. The two anchors gave way and she dragged for the beach. The tug Simpson tried to bring her in, but the tug started filling with water in her fire room, so they cut loose. Cummings showed a signal of distress and dragged to within a half mile from shore. Captain McCulloch ordered a hole cut in the hull to scuttle the ship, but the rudder hit bottom and drove up through the hull and the schooner sank without the crew's assistance. They went into the rigging south of Milwaukee's harbor in 20 feet of water. The lifesavers had been watching from shore and they loaded six ounces of black powder into the Lyle gun and fired it towards the Cummings. It failed to reach the schooner, so keeper Jason Pratton launched the 27-foot lifeboat into the river and hoped for a tug to tow him. The skipper of the Knight Templar said the weather was too heavy for him to go out, so the lifesavers rowed out by themselves, being met in the river by Captain McSweeney aboard the tug Hagerman. Hagerman took the tow line but dropped it when a steamer came into the narrow channel. They said they would return after the steamer passed, but Pratton was anxious to get to the survivors and instead rowed into the 60-mile-per-hour gale. They managed to cover the half-mile to the wreck, but the storm didn't give the rescuers any help. A wave brought the lifeboat up and smashed it into the mast of the Cummings. Pratton and surfman Frank Gertis were thrown from the lifeboat. The rescue craft's oars were broken or lost and two oarlocks were bent, rendering the boat useless. 
One rescuer managed to swim for shore and he was pulled out of the surf by local fishermen. Surfman Frank Gertis was now stranded with the survivors. One surfman was worn out and nearly helpless and the keeper had injured one of his hands. They returned to the station at 12.30 where they found dry clothing and called for help from the Racine station 25 miles to the south. The Racine crew arrived at 3 o'clock and brought a surf boat which Pratton believed was inadequate for the rescue. Local sailors secured the lifeboat of the steamer Nebraska and devised a plan to bring surfman Gertis and the three remaining crew to shore. The tug Hagerman was again employed and a heavy barge was tied to it. Surfman Gertis had spent his time wisely tying the crew to the mast to await rescue. When the boats came alongside, the barge smashed into the Cummings and holed itself and the mate jumped to the rescue boat and missed, immediately drowning. Seaman Robert Patterson then boarded the lifeboat and surfman Gertis followed. They cut the lines to the scow and drifted to shore, reaching safety at five o'clock. Six of the seven-person crew of the Cummings were lost, with cook Elizabeth C. Palmer and seaman James Whiteley being left frozen in the rigging. An inquiry into the rescue sharply criticized Pratton's leadership, stating it was their duty to see that other provision is made for the command of this important post. Life-saving Superintendent Kimball asked for and received Pratton's resignation, and Sturgeon Bay's captain was transferred to Milwaukee. Lifesavers at Michigan City, Indiana also had their hands full, saving Captain Hurst and the five men aboard the schooner Moses Gage. The wreck was just west of the piers when it crashed offshore, becoming a total loss. The keeper was injured in the rescue, which took two trips to bring everyone ashore. It is a bit ironic that the millions of gallons of fresh water that the new intake crib was trying to harness for Lakeview Township was now threatening to kill nearly 40 men who were digging the new water line. The building atop the temporary crib a mile from shore had been destroyed by the waves, and the workers hoisted a danger flag to beg for help. The project superintendent couldn't find a tug that would go out in the storm to rescue the men, and as darkness fell, a red lantern was hoisted to remind the world that they were still out there. The team had worked all winter and had plenty of food to weather the gale, and they survived with minor injuries. Nearby, the Illinois Steel Company had to shut down production as waves forced sand and mud into their collection pipes that were in the lake. Captain Charles Elson of the schooner H.B. Moore had sailed past the steel company as he tried to make a run into the storm to prevent his schooner from being pushed ashore. He made nearly 30 miles but soon ran ashore near the Michigan and Indiana border. The crew made it to the beach on their own, half demanding their pay before walking to Michigan City. Captain Elson walked until he found a rail station at Tolleston, Indiana. Tragically, he died that next year of liver disease. About 50 miles north of Chicago, 30-foot waves ripped the pilot house off the steamer Hudson, and Captain Angus McDonald had the crew rig emergency steering in the stern so they could turn around to get to the only safety they could find on Lake Michigan. Hudson would survive one of Lake Michigan's worst storms, only to be lost on Lake Superior in a gale seven years later. A failed rescue attempt on Lake Huron brought the tragic death toll of the 1894 storm to 27. The schooner William Shoup became waterlogged in the gale and drifted 48 hours until hitting bottom on the west shore of the lake south of Lakeport. 
the crew of six men and a woman cook took to the rigging that night. Captain A.A. Cox of the Tug Thompson attempted a rescue, but he couldn't get out of the St. Clair River. A yawl was launched with local sailors Angus King, Captain Henry Little, William Lewis, Marine reporter Daniel Lynn, and Barney Mills. Their timing was good as conditions allowed them to be assisted out into the lake by the Tug Thompson, where they were towed to within a mile of the wreck. Drifting with the wind, they approached the chute but snagged under a timber from the wreck and a wave flipped them over. Captain Cox had told the men to wear life jackets, but they all refused to put them on, and now they were fighting for their lives in the stormy waters. Only Daniel Lynn made it to shore, a 3,000-yard swim to where Charles Conkey and Mark Chubb Randall waded out with lines to pull his lifeless body in. It took a doctor over a half hour to revive Lynn. Sand Beach lifesavers were telegraphed and Captain George Plough and his men loaded the Flint and Pier Marquette train at what is now Harbor Beach, about 60 miles to the north. The Tug Thompson again helped with the rescue, leaving at 2 o'clock with the lifesavers in tow. The crew was taken out of the rigging and landed on shore at 5 o'clock. Daniel E. Lynn received a gold life-saving medal March 3, 1897, and news articles mentioned he had 27 rescues to his credit. Several of the lost crew were eventually recovered and buried in Lakeside Cemetery. Captain Henry Little, brother of the captain of the shoop, was never found. Pieces of the shipwreck reportedly came ashore and the rudder was recovered and put on display at Port Huron Museum in the 1960s. Life-saving records indicate 19 schooners, two steamers, and four small craft were aided during the 1894 gale, with 52 rescues reported. Weather observations included hail, tornadoes, and a temperature drop of 40 degrees associated with the storm. Souvenir hunters picked several wrecks clean along the Chicago waterfront, including the McLaren. Pieces of hull became collectible canes, and any maritime artifact brought a sizable price. The search for artifacts near 53rd Street brought George McDermott down to the beach. He found an overturned lifeboat about 100 feet from shore, and when they flipped it over, they found the body of Mrs. Elsa Wilson tied to the bench seat. Inside a sealed locker, they found a can of sardines, some biscuits, and a small amount of dried beef. A bottle was discovered as well, and the message inside hinted she was related to the lost captain of the Myrtle. Might capsize any moment, boys refuse to unload boat. Hope that lifesavers will save them. My husband will alone undertake the task. God help us in this terrible task. Should we perish, which is likely, and our bodies be found, remove them to Racine, Wisconsin, and my mother, Mrs. Reginald Jovery, Poplar Street, will pay charges, if I had only followed her advice and stayed with her. The mystery woman was dressed in a fur-lined jacket and a gray woolen dress. She wore a ring on her left hand with the inscription, Jerome Wilson to Elsa, Racine, 1889. The lost captain's name was John, not Jerome, and most newspapers reported he was never married. The Racine paper also said no woman named Mrs. Jovery lived there and that the captain lived at 539 28th Street in Chicago. Captain John Wilson floated ashore at 56th Street and his Masonic ring and unique heavy watch led to a positive identification. 
He had made a deal with three other local skippers that if any of the trio died, they'd throw a big party. The bill for Captain Wilson's goodbye came to $110, and Captain Westerholm didn't think he should be stuck with the tab, as Wilson had an estate valued at $22,000. Westerholm sued the estate through probate court, but lost in 1896. Wilson's body was buried at Rose Hill Cemetery, and contrary to the woman's letter, he was buried alone. The captain of the Lost Rainbow, William Pugh, never sailed again. He ran for sheriff of Racine County six months later and won. After two years, he lost the election and became game warden for Wisconsin until his death in 1922. Just after the great storm, a huge seven-foot-long fish washed ashore. Newspapers said it was as round as a beer keg, and no one could identify the species. A fire was lit and the monster was broiled for anyone who dared to taste it. The flavor was pronounced to be excellent, and a large vertebrae was saved for the brand new Field Columbian Museum. A large piece of history also toppled in the hurricane force winds. Chicago's massacre tree in old cottonwood that allegedly marked the fall of Fort Dearborn during the War of 1812 was blown over in the relentless winds. 50 caliber rounds were reportedly found in the trunk of the tree, near where 41 men and women and 12 children were murdered by Native Americans. Like the wrecks along Lake Michigan's shoreline, the tree was the target of souvenir collectors until the caretaker of Pullman Mansion ran across the street to chase them off. As a final side note, the schooner that wouldn't leave port on a Friday did escape destruction in the gale of 1894. The Frank W. Gifford did meet the same fate as those ships just three seasons later, when it was lost mid-lake off Point Betsy on October 21, 1897. The crew escaped death and were picked up by the schooner City of Sheboygan, which was towed into Chicago by the tug that became so famous in the gale of 1894, Protection. You can learn more about the 1894 gale and the wreck of the Mercury in my new book, Bottled Goodbyes. It's available at the best museums and gift shops all around the Great Lakes or online at lakefury.com. I also have podcasts on many of the worst Great Lakes storms, including 1913 and 1940, available for free at shipwreckpodcast.com. Look for stories on many famous shipwrecks featuring interviews with survivors and those who rescued them. It's an exclusive only found on my website. Thanks for joining me for my look into Chicago's worst storm. For shipwreckpodcast.com, I'm Rick Mixter. <laughs>